Hello, and welcome to Law, the Universe, and Everything. I'm your host, Pacifico Soldati. The show explores topics from law and business to consciousness, spirituality, and everything in between. We feature accomplished leaders across many fields to help you get more out of your life. You can learn more and stay up to date at theluepodcast.com. If you're not familiar with my background, I'm a helper, parent, marketer, attorney outlaw, certified mediator, story brand guide, omnist, yoga teacher, and a former paratrooper and award-winning army chef at the 82nd Airborne Division and U.S. Army Special Operations Command. I'm the founder and CEO of the Soldati Group, a marketing agency helping startups, small businesses, and law firms leverage the power of story to grow their businesses. Law, the Universe, and Everything is a production of the Soldati Group. All opinions expressed by the hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of the Soldati Group or guest employers. This podcast is for information and entertainment purposes only, and these discussions do not constitute legal or investment advice. Today's episode is brought to you by MarketingForAttorneys.com, helping attorneys and law firms clarify and upgrade their marketing and messaging to help grow their firms while reducing reliance on pay-per-click advertising. Visit MarketingForAttorneys.com today to book your free consultation. My guest today is Ethan A. Ancana. Ethan is the founder of Rocky Mountain Physician Agency. He is a healthcare executive with more than one decade of national experience in hospital and healthcare administration. Ethan began his hospital administration journey as a human resources intern after earning a bachelor's degree in business administration and public relations. Over the following decade, Ethan would grow his skill set to include leadership roles in hospital finance, physician contracting and compensation, hospital operations, and healthcare strategy. This extensive training and expertise is underpinned by Ethan's legal and business training, earning his Juris Doctor and Master's in Business Administration from the University of Dayton. While working in physician contracting, Ethan observed that physicians frequently leave money and value on the table during their contract and salary negotiations with hospital executives. He observed a major disparity of access to salary data, contract negotiation expertise, and time when doctors negotiate contracts with health systems, and this disparity disproportionately disadvantages physicians. This awareness of the challenge facing physicians hit Ethan, whose mother is a physician, as an anesthesiologist, close to home. He realized that if physicians see negotiating contracts are at a disadvantage, then this is probably the experience his mom had as well. Physicians and professional athletes spend 20 to 25 years trained to become experts in their respective disciplines. When physicians and athletes go pro, i.e. complete residency training, they're met with complex, high-value contracts they've received no education or training in negotiating. Consequently, professional athletes hire a sports agent to advocate for the athlete to get the value they deserve in their contracts. Rocky Mountain Physician Agency is a sports management agency whose clients are physicians instead of professional athletes. The RMPA advocates for physicians to get the value they've earned in their salary and contracts by using the same industry-leading physician salary data hospitals use. They serve physicians of all specialties, from residency to retirement, whether the physician is currently under contract or planning for an upcoming one. When he isn't negotiating physician contracts or educating residents on tips for success in their first contract, Ethan coaches boys high school basketball in suburban Denver, Colorado. Ethan expresses himself creatively through photography and regularly holds photography exhibits, featuring his work at local establishments around Colorado. His work can be found at newlocalphoto.com. Ethan captured the beauty and pain of the struggle of losing a job for the first time by publishing the photo book, Shit to Remember When You Lose Your Job. The photo book, which is available on the new local website, memorializes the encouragement and advice from Ethan's friends and colleagues that lifted him through the valley of shame and discouragement he experienced. 
This book is intended to pass along that encouragement to others in their time of need. Thank you so much for joining me today, Ethan, and welcome to the show. Pacifico, I'm delighted to be here with you. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. So I'd love to know, talk to me a little bit about your journey, losing your job, starting over from scratch. What was that experience like for you? Yeah, if I can just say first, you made that introduction sound really good. And I want to be very clear, <laughs> my experience has not been this linear, this linear path. It's been really bumpy. And so I hope that as we talk about that, I'm going to focus on just the reality of my experience so that people don't, I think you often see the successes and the parts that we celebrate, but there's a lot of hard work that goes on in the background. And I think that's important as well. But you raise a good question. So about losing my job, that was the low point of my career professionally in about a decade. And it was one of those situations where I got a call from HR about four o'clock on a Friday afternoon, which is never the call that you want to get. And they invited me in and it was my boss, an HR representative. And they told me in about six days, seven days, you're going to be out of a job. And this was contextually, this was the day before my birthday. This was the weekend that my girlfriend Liz was moving to Denver where I live and um, we were going to move in together and just a lot of changes in life happening pop for the positive and then just railroaded by the news that I was going to be out of a job so yeah that's the kind of the cliff notes version of what happened wow that is that is pretty wild and especially right for your birthday that's a lot to take all at once for sure so tell me, what drove you to get a law degree? Yeah, great question. So I noticed you and I have a very similar background academically. I think that's so cool. I'd love to hear, I'd, I'll share, I'm happy to share mine. I'd love to hear your experience and kind of what drove you uh, down this path as well. But I would say the thing that was the catalyst to me wanting to go to law school was working in healthcare. I knew I had to differentiate myself. My mother, as you mentioned in the intro, my mother's a physician. And while I'm not uh, as inclined towards the sciences as she is, she told me, get a job in hospitals because you'll always have a job. There will always be opportunities. And my first job was an internship in HR, making $10 an hour. And they paid my rent as well. It was a nice little, for me, at 23, moving to Los Angeles, it was a nice little package. But that was really the first step into healthcare for me. And I found it was a really cool way for me to use my interest in people and my desire to work in the medical field uh, while lacking that particular medical skill set. It gave me an opportunity to find a, a way to do good while also making an impact on the community. So long story long, I went to law school because I knew that if I wanted to run a hospital and eventually become hospital CEO, I would need to differentiate myself somehow. And as you've likely seen in your experience, there's so many people who have MBAs. And so finding a way to add a skill set that would be needed for a CEO, a legal skill set seemed to be one that would be appropriate. And probably very similar to you. While I was in law school, I, I don't do a very good job of sitting still. So I 
took on some MBA classes my second and third year, and then finished my MBA as I was wrapping up my my law degree. Oh, nice. Yeah, for me, it was definitely I was getting out of the army and ready to use my GI Bill and was sort of like, all right, I've got four years of schooling. How do I get the best bang for my buck? I was raised by a lawyer and a marketer. My, my dad was a DA for the first 18 years of my life. So I grew up in courthouses and then later in law firms that he had started or, or partnered with. And then also grew up in ad agencies where my mom had worked over the years. And so it was just a natural fit. I'd always wanted to be a lawyer and then went and started JDMBA, really fell in love with marketing and got involved in the green tech industry while I was in there and then realized, oh, I really don't want to do what my dad did. I want to do what my mom did. Uh, and so then I've started since then down the marketing path I started a few different ventures like while I was in school, because, yeah, like you said, I can't sit still. I'm like, OK, what else can I do? And I was like, oh, I'm going to start this business or that business and it'll help me get through business school and I'll get to try stuff out and everything. And of course, it's just putting a ton on your plate, especially as like I had two young kids as well. But it was, you know, a really fun experience. And for me, the other justification was also that most lawyers are not great at business and most business people don't really know much about the law. And so being able to straddle those two arenas, I thought was going to be really helpful. And I, I still think it has been, even though I'm I'll never take the bar and kind of philosophically against it, but I've fallen in love with marketing enough. That's what I'll do the rest of my career. But the thing that's been really nice is when I'd gotten into the green tech industry, there was a lot of work in FDA and especially EPA compliance. And it was just super easy for me to hit the ground running there. Whereas most marketers, I think it'd be a bit heavier lift to just try and figure out being knee deep in EPA regulations and labeling guidelines and all sorts of stuff like that. So it's definitely served, served me well. And so I'd love to know how has your, the JDMBA served you in your career in healthcare? I have a huge smile on my face. You said so many things that <laughs> I'm so intrigued by. The one thing that's standing out the most, and, and maybe we can unpack this if you're open to it. The one thing that's standing out to me is you said you're philosophically opposed to the taking the bar. And I'm so intrigued by that. Oh, yeah, actually. So, of course, I don't know how much you followed it, but for the past year, I guess COVID hit, bar exams were either getting canceled or postponed and lots of different things were being done around it. And I had a lot of friends coming out of UC Irvine that were leading the charge for diploma privilege. There's like a Twitter account, like diploma privilege for all. There's a bunch of different movements towards it because there were states, I think it's Wisconsin has, has had it for years where you just graduate from ABA accredited law school in Wisconsin and you can just practice law there. Because to me, it's what's the point of accrediting a law school if you don't then get to practice law afterwards and you have to jump through the hoops of this exam that has absolutely nothing to do with the practice of law. And so it's just fundamentally silly to me. And so everyone after we graduated was like really campaigning and signing letters and really hoping that California would actually acquiesce to that. And of course, that's one of the world's largest economies. And so it would have been, that would have been a pretty big domino to fall. I know some other states, like I had friends in the state of Washington, very fortunate that the state then there accepted diploma privilege because they were like, okay, we're not going to make someone go and sit in a, you know, gymnasium with 200, 300 people in the middle of a global pandemic where you're virtually guaranteed that someone in there has COVID. And so it was a really unique time to start to shine a light on how it's largely just a bullshit gatekeeping practice. And for me, that was just, I'd already lost interest in actually practicing law as an attorney. But then as I just saw more and more of how much the industry was trying to to gatekeep and really keep people out of it, it's, it has absolutely nothing to do with how good a lawyer. There's plenty of 
shitty lawyers and shitty people who have passed the bar and are now shitty attorneys. And so it's not like it prevents that from happening. And so I think the industry really needs and the academy really needs to take a long, hard look at what is the actual point of it? If you're going to accredit a law school, you're saying something about that law school. You're saying that they're preparing people to become lawyers. And because there are really hundreds of different ways to practice law, there's no point in having a single exam. And I really think that more of an apprenticeship model is the way to go, right? So maybe you finish and then you have the first year, you're just on like probation. And then it's almost like you think of something like the NBA Development League or something like that, or like the minor leagues for baseball, right? Why can't we have the minor leagues for attorneys? And I think it parallels what you've done, right? You've basically taken a sports agency and you're like, we're going to do this for physicians. And if lawyers like weren't trained in negotiation, it's probably something that'd be valuable for lawyers as well. But there are so many systems in place that are just like, okay, if you're going to go big law, you're going to make between $150,000 and $190,000 for your first year. And we're just going to grind you into dust. And if you survive that, well, we'll give you a raise and a nice bonus and everything, and you can just continue on. But I think it's time for a lot of different industries, and, and I think the legal industry especially, to reevaluate itself, especially with the rise of different AI platforms that have now been able to replace functionally at least first year, if not second year associates in large law firms and small law firms alike, so that once you're taking on and automating a lot of that work, what is the work that you're teaching someone if you're not having that grunt work to do, right? And a lot of that's going to be more client-facing stuff. And it's not like the bar exam tests your people skills or your emotional intelligence or anything like that. So why are we holding on to this relic from the past? And I think it's really just hazing at this point. It's any lawyer who's 30 or above is I had to do it, so should you. And you know, I saw a lot of that kind of toxic mentality in the military as the military was evolving. And it was bullshit there. And I think it's bullshit in the legal industry as well. That is such a fascinating perspective. And I appreciate your candor. I I don't feel <laughs> as though we're able, especially when it comes, like you said, a relic, when it comes to these legacy industries, we're just not ready to at least have a conversation about, is this still the appropriate model for where we are in the world? And, and I think you're spot on. A, a parallel that comes to my mind is, and it's not an identical uh, situation, but it's paying college athletes. And you talked about yeah, that yeah. first domino to fall, right? You think about if the NCAA as an institution were to be compromised, that's billions of dollars that are at risk. And none of the reasons that I've heard for not paying athletes has anything to do with the fact that uh, they're doing work or that they should be compensated. It has everything to do with the legacy industry of of professional sport, uh, or, or I guess if you want to call it amateur professional sports uh, management, like NCAA and some of the and the BCS and all of those organizations. Yeah, it's really yeah, crazy because when you get down to it, it's really just there to prop up the NCAA. But when you really reflect on it more deeply, it's like, who does the NCAA actually benefit? Correct. Who are they actually helping? Correct. Because really, they're just money-making gatekeepers and <laughs> middlemen to some extent. And it's fascinating the conversation's gone in this direction because I just had one of my good friends. Uh, his name is Frank Thomas. He's, he's a fellow UCI law grad. We we're 1Ls together. And he works for a social justice commission up in Washington State. And 
we had an entire conversation about social justice that was basically framed around a conversation about abolishing the abolishing professional sports drafts. And mm. the justification is that athletes are essentially the only employees in the country that do not get to choose their own employer. And he actually drew an interesting analogy to that saying physicians were essentially the closest because of the matching wow. system. And it was, hey, obviously, like some people are getting their matches and there's some sort of degree of merit that's pushing you in. It's not if you're the best med student coming out of or pre-med student coming out of Stanford, you're probably going to match. But you're probably going to do well, like in getting whatever med school you want. And then coming out of med school, you're probably going to match with whatever hospital you want. Whereas if you are the absolute best college football player like you're going to the shittiest team right like you don't get to go to the best just like a, a doctor mm -hmm. fight. and but there's still that sort of analogous relationship there where it's just oh no we are gonna control this through this bizarrely obfuscating process which the matching process is probably more of a black box and like the NFL draft is, but it's these relics that people are just like, Oh no, what would we do then? It's like everything that we live in and put up with, it's just a decision made long ago. Like we're just yeah. still putting up with that. It's not like it has to be that way. Right? Yeah. It's like when just white men could own property and vote and stuff, it's that's not just like the natural order of the world. That was just like white men wow. seizing power and being yeah. like, Hey, we're going to do this. And then we just have to deal with the aftermath of continually trying to claw back other rights and everything. And But you still have that dynamic, right? You have virtually all white ownership of athletes' careers, and there's basically nothing they can do about it. And it's not like the Players Association is out there advocating for getting rid of the draft or something. And what's really crazy, too, is that it's actually – the quote-unquote worst players, the undrafted free agents that actually get to choose where they want to work. Interesting. Right? You know, Interesting. so it's, there's a lot of different like dynamics there, and in terms of what the focus is on labor, and and I think that's a problem that athletes and physicians both have, is that because they tend to make so much money, they are thought to not be labor they are like oh you're an elite you're capital but it's no you're not capital unless your money's working for you you're definitely labor like you lebron james might make tens of millions of dollars a year but he's still labor he certainly has some investments and stuff i'm sure that bring him into the capital side of things but he's not a billionaire and mm -hmm. it's, it's just a whole different ball game but it really becomes hard for people to reflect on that when you're making 10, 15 bucks an hour at McDonald's or something, and you see all these pro athletes, and you're like, oh, why should they get paid that much money? So you don't have that labor solidarity when you have class stratification. I could spend an hour talking to you about this. I'm so <laughs> enthralled right now. Like, I am so enthralled. I can't even tell you. Because the, the, we're having a conversation now that I feel as though I often have into the void. Why do you think, and that's the, that's really how this business started is why do things have to be the way they are just because we say that they're that way. And I think ultimately the difference between those of us who like, who have the conversation and those of us who just go along with status quo is what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about it? And when I think about 
this business, it, it's exactly what you just said. Doctors are laborers, but we think of them as these elites, almost like rock stars. But when I talk to doctors one-on-one -on -one and I say, how can I support you? And they say, even I feel disposable. Do you think that feels like a rock star? Oh, absolutely. And it's, it's the same thing with attorneys, right? It's just, it's all dressed up. But really, to me, it's an attorney is no different than a plumber. You just do a different task. It's still a trade. And that's why even law school is, it's really just a trade school that is way too long. And <laughs> you really should be out in an apprenticeship because yeah. that's a really crazy thing, especially on the big law side is by the time you finish your first year, you then you've learned everything you need to know to be a lawyer, mm. like the basics of it, right? Like you can learn everything else in the job. Like first year you learn legal writing, you learn how to think like a lawyer. And then later that following summer, you go to on-campus interviewing OCI, you interview, you do this cattle call bullshit thing with a bunch of large law firms. You then get an offer, hopefully. And then the following summer, you go and work for them. And, and then they give you a job offer, but then you have to go back to law school for some reason. And yeah. so it's, wait a minute, why do I have to go back to law school? Like, I just worked <laughs> for you. It was clearly good enough that you gave me a job offer. Nothing's really going to happen in the next year that's going to change how good of a lawyer I'm going to be for you. But then you still get into it and still, especially pre-e-discovery and, and other like AI platforms automating a lot of jobs, you're still going to get in there and do document review, which is something I could train like a 12 year old to do. And then you're just going to slog around and pay your dues. And then eventually they'll start calling you up to actually interface with a client or something like that. And it's just, it's just such a ridiculous system, but everyone just keeps perpetuating it. And you really are disposable because it, you're just, they're just going to grind you up. All, all you are is a billable hour to them. So it's like, okay, here's point one. We're going to break your life down into point one hours into six minute intervals. And that's really all you are to us. Wine you and dine you. And then mm -hmm. we're just going to shoot you up and spit you out. And mm -hmm. if you can make it to the promised land of partnership, it's just, it's just a different kind of suck. And nobody thinks to question the entire dynamic. There's starting to be more people now that do, but it's just it's this whole sort of silly system. And and I think you probably experience the same thing on, on the healthcare side, right? Like it's just like sports teams it's just there's a bunch of old white dudes that are hospital administrators and owners and they just need all of the best like medical talent they can get to just grind them into dust and and i think with both attorneys and with physicians a lot of the exploitation comes about because they're really exploiting the fact that everyone has that save the world mentality or they're helpers mm. or help other people. And it's, oh, yeah, even though we have plenty of data to show that you should not be doing things like 24-hour shifts, like we're going to force you to do 24-hour shifts, whether you're a nurse or a doctor, what have you, because we know that you want to help people so badly that you will do it. And you'll maybe complain a little bit, but for the most part, you're just going to shut up and do it. And Spot no one's, hey, this is really fucked up. You're basically, if you get in a car after a 24-hour shift, it's basically like driving drunk. And mm -hmm. 
there's no problem even the military we used to have like fire guard and whatever other like guard duties and stuff and it would be like a 24-hour shift and they would make such a big deal about the rampant dui problems you'd literally get off of a 24-hour shift and then they'd have you drive home and it's, that's like a point what 0.08 to 0.10 impairment depending on the person and Everyone's just like, whatever, it's fine, no big deal. Wow. <laughs> great. No, you're, you're spot on. And and I heard you, as you were talking about the lawyer's experience, I heard you talking about the MBA putting in a, an age requirement that you have to be 19 and have a year of college under your belt. Those same arbitrary restrictions to prop up these antiquated industries. And it, and it comes back to qui bono, who benefits? Right. Who benefits from having these arbitrary, you know, gatekeepers in place and it's these relic organizations and institutions? Yeah, I always felt like the NBA age limit thing was just so bizarre because it was at least the NFL can pretend three years <laughs> for the, the benefit of child education. I do think football is far more dangerous and abusive that it does help from a physical standpoint, because most high school children like most high school 18 year olds should absolutely not be anywhere near an NFL field because most kids, when they leave college football, they all, everyone, even like the Reggie Bushes of the world who just ran roughshod all over my fighting Irish. Once he got to the NFL, it humanized him. Like in college, he was not, he was superhuman, a total freak, could just do absolutely anything. You'd be like, there's nothing this dude can't do. And then you get to, you know, the NFL and he's like, a very good running back and a very good player but it's there's no one really in the nfl that's oh this is like thor this is a demigod mm -hmm. right it's like maybe back in the day something like bo jackson or you know michael jordan or something in certain sports but for the most part like that just doesn't exist because it just levels the playing field because it's just a, such a higher level of play but the thing is, is like in the nba there's plenty of 18 year old kids that can play in the nba but then they're like no, you have to go to college for one year and jeopardize your entire future because yes. if you get injured in that year, you're screwed. What else have you, to get to that point, you've had to do year-round basketball for most of your life. The exception to the rule is someone who has like developed other skills. That's just by and large, like it to reach that level of anything, you have to be putting so much of your focus into just that one sport. And so forcing kids to then jeopardize losing that or making them take out large insurance policies on their legs mm -hmm. or their bodies or their careers or whatever is just totally asinine because we the NCAA forces this continued anachronistic philosophy of like amateurism They're like oh amateurism <laughs> is like this super high calling and it's just, how can you simultaneously say that amateurism is like this really high calling while you essentially have created this like fiefdom of indentured servitude where you make billions of dollars off of athletes and they can't cash in at all, which the recent ruling this week was amazing that now it's, oh, actually you don't have carte blanche to suppress kids making money off of being athletes. And because where else does that even happen? We don't treat any other employees like we do athletes, but people then say, oh, it's a 
privilege it's an honor so like you should just shut up and be happy that you get to play in the nba or you get to play for stanford or whatever and it's just this is totally ludicrous you know because you are sacrificing your body different for all of us at work Mm -hmm. you should be grateful to be here I, i i don't think that's yeah like we it's more dramatic because there's millions of dollars at stake, but you and I probably see that at work every day. Oh, absolutely. And you're, yeah, we're all sacrificing our bodies in one way or another. And even just hell, sitting in a chair is like one of the most unhealthy things you can do. But because it's immobile, people don't think about how much mm-hmm. it's just, just destroying your knees mm-hmm. and your health and making you more sedentary. Yeah. So I absolutely agree on that side. Like, absolutely. There, and that's why there should be so much more labor solidarity if people like really understood clash consciousness more, but it is just, it is that stratification where it's, Oh, they make millions of dollars and I don't. So we're not. Mm-hmm. Exactly. You know? And exactly. it's like, well, you can't actually see like the sort of puppet masters above all this that are actually yes. controlling things. Right. Like, that's who's pushing this in one direction or the other. And it's been really fascinating with this whole sort of quote unquote, like, faux labor shortage bullshit of everyone being like i can't every small business i just just went home i live in phoenix but i just went home and visited new hampshire and i was like in a coffee shop and there's one woman just like oh my gosh like we can't find help and it's just like what are you what are you offering these people and it's maybe just pay them more or make a better work environment and then it would be fine and then it was funny too because i've now i saw a conversation there and i've now seen multiple conversations in which people who i believe would otherwise be against ubi talk themselves in circles to it and so one woman was just like i can't get anyone to come and work for me because they're paying everyone not to work and then another woman was like i think that they should just they should actually just pay everyone to work so (laughs) you're going out and getting a job and then you should get paid and i'm just like oh like you're so close you're you're so you're almost getting it that we should actually just be providing like a modicum minimum of human for people but if you said the words to them they oh they'd flip the fuck that's a socialist and that's i've been arguing with i've tried to stop but i'm a um i've gotten a little more liberal in my use of linkedin and just meeting randos and just hey you never know who's going to change your life let's connect let's have a conversation let's do business together to me it's like business is a team sport it's collaborative not competitive so i'm like i'll talk to whomever and i've gotten more and more people on there that's like varying political perspectives and so they'll put stuff and they'll just be like lambasting unemployment insurance and all that kind of stuff and fighting against like ubi and they're just like ubi is socialist and i was like Okay, so like UBI has absolutely nothing to do with the means of production. And so the issue is that if you're not handing over the means of production, it's not actually socialism. And what UBI actually is, to me, is a guillotine preventative device, right? It's this is actually how you save capitalism is just give people more money, because if you don't, then that's when people bring out the heavy artillery to bring down governments. And so I think there's a lot that could be done like on the socialist side to say incentivize businesses to be employee owned or something that would not be strictly socialist or strictly capitalist. I think there's a lot of hybrid opportunities there. But it's so amazing how like little people actually understand most of what they talk about in this arena. And then they just want everything on the right is just painting everything as socialism that actually helps people. And so it's just like, come on, this is totally ridiculous. 
<laughs> I love it. I like I said, I'm just so intrigued by your perspective because it feels as though there's some debates I just love to have with you about topics very similar to this one. I just I think this is so fascinating. The other thing I'm curious, and I know we're way off topic, but oh, it's the all good. Thing I'm curious to like hear your perspective on is the push to bring workers back to the office. What do you think that's about? Oh, I think it's all about control. Right. And as someone who worked in several offices throughout the years, the hardest thing about any job I've ever had was pretending I was busy. So I had a lot of jobs where I would start the job and I would be so nervous. I'd be like, can I do this? What's going to happen? Can I hack it? Right. And without exception, with it, but to varying degrees, within, say, three to six months, I not only would be like excelling and very comfortable in my job, but I would have whittled down the actual time necessary into a few minutes to a few hours a day. So I had one job that I did performed exceptionally well, like really everyone loved like the work I was doing. I was really helping the company a lot. And about, yeah, about four months in, I had just figured out a system. I was like using Salesforce and like all this other stuff. And it was like, I'd gotten to the point where I came in and I would only need to do about an hour of work every morning. And then it was like an excruciating seven hours of like staring at a computer screen and just like clicking around and pretending to work. And then in certain office setups, I'd have people that could like see my screen or whatever. So I'm like trying to keep Salesforce open while I'm like playing solitaire or <laughs> chatting with someone on Gchat back in the day when that's all there was. And it was just... It was so bizarre, but it was yeah. just like, okay. And my job, they had been like, hey, work yourself out of a job, automate as much as you can. And I'd gotten there, but it was like, okay, now the other options here are not like enticing. So I actually yeah. don't want to be like, oh, hey, I've worked myself out of a job. Give me something else. But it was like, there was nothing. I loved my job. It was just like there, it was now a five to 10 hour a week job. And I was like, I still need to live and I still need to like pay the bills and stuff. But then eventually like that goes bad because then it's just, you start to get complacent. You start to get resentful. But I think it really is that sort of FaceTime for FaceTime's sake. And mm. how could you possibly be working if we can't see you doing it? It's this, it's like this memory wipe or something that they're just like, oh, no, if, if I didn't see it, it didn't happen. And to me, I remember in the army, there was always a, a dichotomy between working to standard and working to time. And mm. so there were a lot of times where we'd finish everything we had to do. Not when I was working in like a dining facility, because I was always three meals a day, just hell. When we're when a dining facility was closed or I was doing other jobs or something, there were times we'd finish at like two or three p.m. And it was just like, okay, we're done. What else do we, can we just go home? Oh no, you can't go home. We work until five or we work until six. And it's like, <laughs> but then we literally just sit around like twiddling our thumbs and they just have someone higher ranked or sometimes me once I got to a high enough rank, just babysitting each other. Yeah. And it was just like, okay, go and sit in this conference room and wait for three hours until you're allowed to go home wow. because it was like part of that was all like oh the military has to suck so we can't possibly give you a break even though it's oh 
later this week, you're going to have to do an 18 hour shift or a 24 hour shift, or you won't even wow. know where you're going to go. We got to go jump out of an airplane or something. So it's going to take 17 hours. And cause there's so many people doing it, whatever, we're going to go to the field and it's okay. There's going to be really shitty stuff later. We finished early today. Why don't you just give us a break? And it's just, no, it has to suck. And I think yeah. that mentality really permeates. And I think it does go back to the, the mentality I raised earlier, which is, I did, I suffered through this hardship. So you have to as well. And I think that COVID has really exposed how bullshit that mentality is and how much, at least if you work, obviously like you can't really substitute like a grocery store clerk with some remote job, but for anyone who does just like work behind a computer or works in an office environment, by and large, there is absolutely no reason for you to be at work in a physical office with other people like it just doesn't some people like it i'm an extrovert like i love being around other people i don't really love commutes that suck i've had some cool commutes either because i was like taking a train or i could do other stuff or if i had like an autonomous vehicle and i could just do other things like cool get a podcast get an audiobook or something like that bide your time learn something else but for me, really, it's just this system of antiquated control and that, oh, if you're not going to be at the office and I can't see you working for eight interrupted hours, then like, how could you possibly have done it? And I think it also goes to the fact that a lot of bosses like struggle to actually just evaluate the work. Right? <laughs> like you could sit there and just do a shitty ass job. But because you sat there and they saw you, they're like, oh, wow, this person's Deborah is a hard worker. Kevin's a hard worker. And it's, what's their work product? And if it sucks, like, why? Why do you want them working more? You should want them working less if they suck at it. But at home, it was like, oh, wait a minute. All you have to go on is your actual work product. Mm. So in any professional environment, hell, lawyers, there's virtually no reason except for meeting with clients. There's basically no reason for like law firms even exist as like physical entities yeah right? like it's it should and there's plenty of law firms pioneering going like virtual or quasi virtual mm -hmm. and i think that's really the future because so much more stuff's going to get automated online and even now right going to court there's yeah. an antiquated institution and what did they do during covid the ones that didn't shut down they went to zoom and they're like yeah. okay here's your zoom hearing and it's oh hey think about how many more cases you could do yeah. how much you wouldn't have a backlog if we could just do a zoom hearing you can just kick people out of the zoom meeting mute them shut them down or whatever you, know, like you can keep things moving along at your pace and the judge still has full control and there's so many you can record it there's so many different options that give you absolutely everything that exists otherwise and it's why can't we just do that and i think that was the biggest question that covid raised and answered it was like why can't we just do that and it's, oh because some bullshit just some bullshit that's why i started covid like in when i was just before covid in march of 2020 i started a new job and i was in the office going back to december 2019 and then we all went remote and i remember getting on a call a couple of calls with our you know top guy and he was just saying man you guys are your productivity is just through the roof, you guys are amazing. How do you reconcile how productive, because productivity has gone up, people are working more because the lines are blurred, there's no commute. How do you reconcile 
corporation saying, hey, we did such an amazing job. We've been so productive. And hey, I want you back in the office. I, I can't reconcile those ideas. I think it's just they see it as somewhat of an anomaly, but they also just, they want the control and they want the monitoring. Wow. And cause it's almost, I think it's too much freedom, right? Like the past wow. year, I think they just endured it. It was just like, okay, we have to let this happen. Apple, what Apple came back with, what was it like three, two days you can work from home or three days you got me in the office. If they don't reverse that, they're going to see a massive brain drain because why would you bother? And it's Apple hasn't been that innovative, you know, in the Tim Cook era as they were under Steve Jobs anyways. But if you're going to come up with a nonsense approach to working from home like that, you think about how much more innovative Apple could be if they were just like, yep, work from home, do your thing, just figure it out. Mm -hmm. Because to me, it's about not trusting your employees. Wow. That's why no one wants to let people work from home. And the companies that do, they trust their employees because mm. they, they can look at the actual numbers. They see how things may have actually improved during the pandemic. And I think those more sort of progressive employees on that front, they actually, the best ones of those that'll come out in the next year, are the ones that then are able to actually put some type of like guardrails in place so that they're actually not overworking. Right. Because that's been the yes, problem is like yes. people start overworking. And so there's going to be a bunch of companies where, People just keep overworking and then they grind themselves into dust at home. And of course, all the other where they have kids or other stuff going on, that'll become a problem. But then the companies that will end up winning are the ones that proactively and preemptively address those issues. Yes. And then I think the companies that are going to really start to falter are the ones that are mandating that people that don't have to be there have to be there. I think there's a lot to be said for in-person creative collaboration. So there's a lot to be said for, hey, create sort of a hub and infinite spoke model where you set up a, a company in, in Austin or LA or wherever. And all you have there is creatives. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. then maybe a few administrative personnel or something, but And then everyone else that does anything else for the company can live anywhere else in the world. That to me is like the the peak companies of the future are going to have a model similar to that, which at least semi-centralizes creativity and decentralizes absolutely everything else. Yes. And because there's really no substitute between being in a it's like a writer's room on a sitcom like that, right? That's not, you don't get that same like vibe over Zoom and stuff. You can't hear multiple people talk at once. You don't get all the laughter and that energy and stuff. And so I 100% believe there's value in being in person for creativity. Yeah. For I, everything I'm, else an, in person. I'm an extreme introvert and I've been so stoked to work from home. And I don't think I'll ever go back to an office. But when I was talking with my better half last week, the one thing I said is, the thing that I miss about being in office is that that creativity of having smart people around you and you can talk through a problem and get different perspectives. That is irreplaceable. It is yeah. irreplaceable. Well, and I think even just a, the random encounter, 
right? Just like the hallway mm-hmm. conversation or, or whatever, or just grabbing lunch with your coworkers or something. I think those like those moments of serendipity or, or camaraderie, especially as an expert, extrovert who's all about open as many doors as possible and then decide which ones you want to walk through and two different brains and ideas together and, and creating something better. I definitely think those types of dynamics are definitely missed. However, especially the more of a life you have outside your work, the more you should probably not be in an office or you may not yeah. like to be in an office. And some yeah. people struggle to compartmentalize their own lives. So for some people, it's like working from home is just like a non-starter. They just can't hack it. But I think that's like the vast minority of people. I think most mm-hmm. people, they'd rather have their commutes back. How much more time is that with your spouse, your, you know, significant other your kids parents whomever right how much more time is that for a hobby for creativity for other things we've wasted and it's interesting too right because we are in just this very tiny little sliver of human history that will never exist again that is pre-autonomous vehicles post cars right so this 100 to 150 ish year period is really the only time that this problem will exist But then it's once we have autonomous vehicles that you can literally do anything in a car that you could in your house pretty much besides maybe go to the bathroom, but I'm sure that'll be like rectified (laughs) at some point. Hell, we already have like RVs that do it and stuff. So it's just a smaller form factor, get it into a Model X or something. And then I think that's really going to change things again, because I think that's, I think the commute is really the thing that most people hate certainly there's love commuting and certainly there's cool and fun ways to do it but by and large that is just wasted time especially if you're somewhere in a very dense area obviously yeah if you're out in rural nowhere and you have to drive an hour or something like that can suck but that sucks in a different way than sitting on the 405 in la for an hour to go five miles Mm -hmm. you know so that's you're just wasting your life at that point. Now, yeah, you can do an audiobook, you can do podcasts, you can do things to learn something, but you're literally just like burning up fossil fuels yeah. for just no reason. And especially if you don't actually need to be at the place where you're going. Yeah. Yeah. It's fascinating. It's fascinating. I haven't talked to anyone that I've like, I've heard have views this strong that I've just been like, man, like this dude gets it. Like I said, it feels like so often I'm screaming into the void or you don't even bring some of this stuff up because like you said, like we're in such a small part of human history that people see this as everything that ever was. Right. Right. And there's nothing new. There's, there's answers to all of this. And the things that I think I'm, that, that cause so much tension for me are these things, these antiquated institutions that just don't seem to be open to change and to evolution. And I, American healthcare is a phenomenal example of just super slow moving, lethargic industries, frankly. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's just, just absolute nonsense, right? This is a period. I mean, recorded history, right? Like, inventional writing, what, six, 8,000 years ago or so? What, 6,500 BC, something like that? So we're talking less than 10,000 years 
of our multi-million year evolution is that's all we have is like Mm -hmm. this tiny little piece of recorded history Mm -hmm. and we got along just fine before that with a variety of different ways of doing things that people bring up like life expectancy but really the problem with life expectancy calculations is that they're all they're usually people just look at averages and there was just really high infant mortality but once we fixed infant mortality like mm. everything shot up right there were people living there were sexagenarians septuagenarians hundreds and thousands of years ago you just don't hear it because people think that everyone lived to 30 and that's why they got married when they were like 12 years old and it's like that's actually not how things worked huh. and i think now you have things with healthcare where we've got on the one side several countries that have figured out how to do it how to do it that delivers good healthcare in a timely manner that actually raises human happiness and because i think really what should the goal of a healthcare system be to me it should maximize human happiness because mm. you can fund them you don't even have to say it should keep everyone healthy because like when you're sick you're generally unhappy and not content in that moment mm. and so it's happiness is just downstream of ha- being healthy and so if we can just max and the other thing too is that happiness encompasses not just physical but mental emotional mm-hmm. spiritual health mm-hmm. and so what is our system actually designed to do it's not designed to keep people healthy it's designed to profit off people being unhealthy mm-hmm. and we and people can't even generally fathom that that's how it works a lot of people are hip to it but a lot of people just accept oh this is healthcare and it's the word healthcare is just a psyop right this is not healthcare this is profit on sickness that's all it is yeah. and you can make up of a, then you have the sort of evil marketers that have existed throughout the world that have helped tobacco companies healthcare companies pharmaceutical companies to develop different marketing strategies to keep people sicker or trick people or convince people that they have different diseases and i think one of the worst things was like allowing pharmaceutical drugs back on to like mass market media because mm. now then someone who's like never had any issues can be like oh i have restless leg syndrome now or i have mm. and it's just oh what's actually going to happen because then you basically people start developing like munchausen syndrome and they're just like oh i'm so sick and i'm gonna you know and it's just all right do you actually i've seen the reality of like severe add adhd things like that there's obviously like a variety of sensory and like attention disorders that exist but at the same time like how much of it is a product of our educational systems and our healthcare Mm -hmm. systems that just say oh you have this problem take this pill but then you end up with friends who started on 10 milligrams of ritalin you know like 10 20 30 years ago and now they're on you know 50 milligrams or 100 milligrams or and it's oh if they try and step off that like dramatically changes their personality Mm -hmm. but is it making them healthier where there are other ways of doing it and we don't we really don't put enough into preventative medicine we don't put enough into just mental health to show you take people in hospice cancer survivors people with terminal illnesses that then come back and survive that and what's one of the defining characteristics that's different from the people who die 
is their outlook is just their mm-hmm. mental framework of, Oh, I can overcome this or versus this is a death sentence. Wow. And so I think there's just so much better that we can do and that we can reimagine. Everyone's just like, Oh, the Supreme court just held up more of the ACA. And I was just like, yeah, there's a lot of reasons that's a really good thing, but then there's a lot of reasons it's a bad thing because it just continues to convince people like, oh, that the ACA is like this good thing. And it's just because it has good features doesn't make it a good thing when really the entire structure is an abject failure of humanity, right? Like we could, as the richest country in the history of the world, just say everyone will be taken care of. We will guarantee universal health care. And now that doesn't mean necessarily socialized medicine or a single payer or whatever that's what happens though you have to qualify it right if we were having a conversation separate from politics about the burden and the fact that the healthcare costs are the leading cause of bankruptcies in america for for people if if we were having a legitimate conversation about that we would all agree it's a horrible system that's not to benefit us as consumers but the moment you say everybody gets something, then you lose people. You lose people because they have to put a title on it and they call mm-hmm. it, they want to call it socialism or call it something mm-hmm. that ruffles their political uh, proclivities or preferences. But I think it goes deeper than that into that there is a thread of discourse, political and social discourse in this country that whose original sin was chattel slavery but the same concept continues and that is that i don't want the people i don't like to get something i don't want someone else to be better off i don't want my tax dollars helping people whose skin color i don't like it really is that fundamental like that this is just a racist country like from birth from pre-birth right from conception this is it has always been that way and because we allow things to happen we let people ride around with their participation trophy confederate flags (laughs) and we don't drill it into them hey you fucking lost like then that behave those behaviors still continue and then you end up with stuff like the january 6th like yeah. little like nonsense little party they fucking insurrection bullshit but it's just totally asinine but it's this is just a country that's never been able to face its demons it's never been able to conduct proper introspection because it's we have so many myths in this country that like we're this hero country right yeah. oh we saved the world in world war ii no we didn't we knew exactly what was happening for a long time and we didn't jump in to save Jewish people and save other people that were being killed. We jumped in because we got punched in the mouth and weren't expecting it. And you're not about to punch the schoolyard bully in the mouth. And then after that, it's just been nothing but continuing the same behavior. You think of the size of our military budget. And when is the last time that we actually did something with our military that was actually a necessity? versus something we just chose to do we're just gonna go and fuck with some people like it's absolutely bonkers but people don't even think anything of it people want to say oh we don't have money for ubi we don't have money for healthcare. 
But you know what? It's like, as an American, if you pay your taxes, you've actually contributed towards directly killing people. A lot of people. And no one questions that whatsoever. I think a big topic of conversation now is, oh, I actually read something. I think it was Abigail Disney, Walt Disney's granddaughter, or maybe daughter. I forget. She's 60 now, so maybe daughter. But she just wrote an article, I think it was in The Atlantic, about, hey, from birth, I was basically taught to protect my dynastic wealth and that wealthy people are taught not to trust the government and that you shouldn't give them your money. And... And then you see all these movements towards, oh, let's do a wealth tax. Let's tax the rich. Let's do this and that. And for me, there's that it feels like putting the car before the horse, or maybe there's sort of a chicken and egg problem. Because if you just go and collect more money right now, that's just going to go back into the same shitty systems. And we're just wow. going to drone the shit out of more brown people like across the world, right? I would rather actually wow. stop doing that shit first and then let's go and get more money to put where we're going to put. But to me, it's if I'm a business person and I'm trying to grow my business and make millions or billions of dollars, personally, I think in a capitalist society that we have that is so war hungry, there is actually a moral imperative to keep as much money away from the government as possible. Mm-hmm. Because by and large, look at the budget. Yeah. Most of your money is going to go to kill people in some way. That's just a fact. And people want to act, oh, you're taking money away from like food stamps. No, taking money away from food stamps is when Congress goes and like cuts food stamps. Right. That's the problem isn't that all these rich people didn't pay enough taxes. That's a that's a different problem than like we're doing a bunch of fucked up shit with the money we do collect that we need to stop doing before we collect more money. But people just don't, there's just no marketing around that. There's no regular pervasive consciousness around that because it's just, oh, I don't have this and they have that. And so we're at odds with one another or something. And you can't, people want to say that, oh, the government is, is benevolent force (laughs) unless it's the opposing party and it's Mm -hmm. what has our government done that's just been like a net positive good and it's just there's certain examples but in general they're few and far between especially i turned 18 four days before 9 11 so my entire adult life has just been a never-ending shit show of carnage i was involved in the global war on terror i went to afghanistan i went to africa i've been all over the world on behalf of the U.S. military trying to fucking kill people and train other people to kill people. And we never take the introspection to be like, oh, maybe are we the bad, right? Are we the problem? Is I often wonder, I fantasize about what would happen if you flipped the budgets for the Department of Defense and the Department of State, right? Like, what if the most money we spent was towards diplomacy? And it's just like, how much less would we have to fight but how much less money is in diplomacy it's so, oh then who are we going to sell weapons to like how Correct. can we you can't it's once people start getting along and maybe you can make some investments and make some money that way but then things become self-sufficient right yeah. whereas if you can keep a country or a continent down we basically completely destroy the country of iraq and for with no consequence really to ourselves, aside from like the individual who lost their lives, but in terms of a country and a government, mm-hmm, absolutely mm-hmm. no repercussions for that. When it's like, mm, those were war crimes. And, but it's, oh, we're not going to join the International Criminal Court. So we're not going to deal with that kind of shit. And it's just bonkers, dude. Like 
the stuff our country gets away with. And I really feel like eventually like the chickens will come home to roost. And but it's going to take a truly transformative leader. And I don't think we've had a transformative leader since probably JFK. Right. Mm. Because to me, like a transformative leader is someone with ideas that are worthy of being assassinated for. If you, you know, like Barack Obama did not have any ideas that anyone was like worth assassinating, Mm-mm. right? It's just, he's not there. He's just a neoliberal centrist. He's not there to rock the boat. The only thing that rocked the boat was the color of his skin and yeah. the sound of his name. But when you really look at it, like who still has unsafe ideas, right? Who still wants to shatter the CIA and splinter it into a thousand pieces and spread it around the world. You know what I mean? Nobody's talking about that stuff anymore. Nobody wants to do that stuff. Everyone just wants to play the game. They want to get into Congress or get into the Senate and get rich and stay there as long as they can. And then maybe they take a shot at the White House. But nobody's there to rock the boat because if you rock the boat, you're probably not getting to get in there. But it'll be interesting to see with Gen Z and millennials if someone's able to like make some noise and build a big enough following that they can overcome some of those power structures. I think when I reflect back, I launched my business a year ago and I left my job in November, my full-time job. And it was the scariest part of my life, just not having an income. And I reflect on like those six months and Every month, at least, it feels like every week, I have a conversation that I'm just fucking floored. And this is that conversation. (laughs) This is that conversation, dude. I'm just, I'm fucking floored, man. (laughs) and, And I think part of it, if I'm like being introspective for a moment, I think part of it is when you work and i've always been an employee up until six months ago when you work in an environment where you have a bunch of people around you and you spend so much time that tends i think you alluded to this earlier that tends to become your social network your professional network and if you don't have a really robust outside social life those might be your friends as well and so the things you talk about tend to relate to the things that you all see and interact with every day. And so there's no space for conversations like this. There's no space for meta conversations about, yeah, taxing the rich is a good idea, but it's actually not the problem that we think we're solving. There's, I'm just, man, I love that I get to have conversations like this and it would have never happened if I would have continued to be in it. Uh, I could definitely see that. I and mean, it's, yeah, I just think about all the restaurants and offices and other places I worked and everything. And it's, yeah, it's, that's your, these are your friends now. <laughs> like yeah. just the other people that this place randomly hired. Yes. I saw It's, there's no, like your work family. What the fuck? These people, it's a coincidence. <laughs> There's no strategy. There's, I think there's certainly a minority of businesses, so maybe 10 or 20% at most, that they do put a lot into culture and have a sufficient size that they'll recruit a certain type of person, maybe with some mm-hmm. sort of diversity, whether it's a thought diversity or racial or ethnic diversity or gender or whatever. But at the same time, it's, yeah, like your local like mom and pop store or restaurant 
or whatever. And even like a, a chain restaurant, right? No one's, oh man, like I want, I can't wait to go work at Applebee's. You just like someday you're just like, I have to go apply. I need a job. Like I'm going to go apply to Applebee's. And yeah. then all of a sudden just like 25 randos from your local area that also found themselves in the same predicament of needing to work at Applebee's. These are your friends now. Yeah. And you're just going to get into whatever weird shit like this group of people has gotten going on. And it's fun in, in its own way. But at the same time, it's just like, I saw a TikTok the other day of a woman that was just like, how do you even make friends after high school? How do you even establish these connections with people? And it's, I think back, like my friends from college, like we started I'd, recently, somebody posted, we graduated high school 20 years ago last week. Yeah. And I was like, oh God. Yeah. And then started college. And then it was like, oh man, like I've known my college friends, like almost 20 years. And those are the closest friends I have still mm -hmm. to this day. Like I've made plenty of friends and the military and, and other things I've done, law school, like anytime to me, I think going through a stressful thing is certainly helpful. And so a lot of great friends from law school and stuff, but it's like when we don't have these like artificial constraints, it's hard to just go out and make friends like organically. Yes. And so that's one thing that like employers actually provide, not like on purpose, just by the de facto state of things. And so then yeah, what's going to happen when it's okay, we could all be remote. And then like, all you ever see is someone's like zoom background or something like that. And you like, there just isn't that extra piece of it. And so I think that's, yeah. I don't think that's something we'll see the fallout from for years. I think that's like, the second half of this decade, we'll start to see things like that. But I also think then, as people recognize it, we'll have cottage industries pop up of you know, like different virtual experiences, right? Like how to almost like Fortnite for adults, where to go and make friends in virtual spaces that people actually get comfortable with making actual connections that are deep. And because one thing I've noticed too, gone on and, and gained a greater like understanding of like human dynamics and like extroversion, things like that. Is I've also seen an interesting dynamic I don't see discussed much, which is the ability for people to develop and maintain relationships virtually versus needing it to be in person. Mm -hmm. right? And so I've definitely found like I have I have really good friends I've literally never met that I met online in random. I have a, a great friend. I met her through my LSAT prep programs oh. online forum and we would do we would help tutoring calls and we would help each other through the process of applying to law school and kept in touch throughout law school and then actually was able to like hire her for one of the companies i worked with but it was all remote still never wow. met this person like she's now married has a kid and is just one of the people i cherish most in the world and is 100 percent online but i know wow. other people that fundamentally cannot bridge that gap but it's also fascinating to me too. You look at something like Facebook and it's okay. I've got, I don't know, 1500 ish friends on there from basically like birth to current people I've just met. And because of the algorithm, right? Like you only see 50 to a hundred of them. And then it's just, that's just the randomness of what that algorithm decided. So then I have people on there that I went to college with and I knew in college and we were just like acquaintances to like light friends, like social friends mm -hmm. that like we're now better friends just because Facebook stuck us in together. And it's just like, wow. that's so weird. And then the flip side, of course, you've got like the people you may know. There's people on there and you're like, man, 
I'm literally going to be looking at this person's face for the rest of my life. And I'm never going to add them as a friend. (laughs) (laughs) But they're always going to be there. And maybe someday they'll like update their photos and I'll be like, oh, okay, they're older now. Oh, I don't even think people think about the fact that Facebook is probably already, but will forever be the largest digital graveyard. Huh. Because they actually allow for it. And they've actually developed things now of like they actually have like concierge services or whatever. Like they switch it over to remembering so-and-so or whatever. Yeah. Whereas I just found out, actually, I saw a post where LinkedIn actually, if they find out you're dead, they delete you. So oh, like yeah. you can, and apparently on LinkedIn, you can report that someone is dead. And so I saw this kind of sad post from a guy who was like, who reported my dead friend? And I was just like, oh God, this is terrible. Because it was just like, Oh, it was just like his record of all he had done professionally or whatever. It had just been sitting there and someone fucking reported him and LinkedIn was like, deleted. Oh, no. Like, what the fuck? But yeah, it's it's interesting because like how I think about, say, my grandchildren or definitely like my great grandchildren. I think I think Zuckerberg has, you know, put enough in place that like you can't just disappear a two billion person platform. Right. Like it's mm-hmm. probably going to be around. It's like a semi permanent structure, at mm-hmm. this point, even if it declines in popularity. Because to me, what will end up happening is there will be a resurgence in popularity of Facebook like 50 years from now when our grandchildren want to go through and see how their grandparents live. So, because like I look at for me, I can trace back probably to like in some like lines back to like great grandparents. Mm-hmm. But I know very little beyond like their name and maybe like a role that they had or something like that. But it's my great grandchildren. <laughs> they can come back and see every dumbass like joke Did I posted. They, yeah, they can see. Yeah, they can see everything you were eating. They can see all the stuff you were doing. And then how does that change human evolution? Right. Oh. How does that sort of shift like what we do and where we go as a species? I think that's really fascinating. Yeah, that is really interesting. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that. And I don't have a personal Facebook, but I can appreciate the ubiquity of of Facebook, at least from a social media perspective. I don't know. I'll be curious to see how the movie unfolds. But I just I feel like, to your point, they have their tentacles in enough things that it would be it's not like just getting rid of a social media platform. Like TikTok. If I get rid of Facebook, I now have gotten rid of my dating apps. I've gotten rid of my, maybe some of my financial account, like mobile payment capabilities. I just, I feel like they're just, their tentacles are in everything. Like how would you even Mm. extricate that from your life? Oh yeah. It's, they don't make it easy to begin with, but then the amount of other stuff that they've been tracking, I've often thought that, and I hadn't thought of this use specifically for it, but I've often thought that Within five years, everyone is going to need a personal digital assistant. Like you're going to need like a hyper intelligent version of Siri. So for one thing, detecting fake news, for example. So something that can actually like be a single like verification source of truth for you personally. And but then I think also just to maintain and monitor the health of your online profile, right? So you think right now we've got stuff like credit reporting agencies Mm -hmm. and or credit monitoring services for the credit reporting agencies, right? Now imagine you just have a digital life monitoring agency. And so they can go on, they'd be like, hey, these 3000 companies are tracking your every move online. Mm -hmm. Because I think that's where a lot of privacy stuff is going is that the companies are going to be 
only as fast as the regulations like mandate them to be and the regulations are going to really be slow. And so I think you're going to need stuff that's more along the lines of, I don't know if you've ever seen like facial recognition, makeup or jewelry. That's basically the like stuff that you wear that interferes with facial recognition technology. So you can't be tracked by your face. And so I think we'll have the same sort of things. If you can imagine extrapolating like a VPN to your entire digital life, that you could go into a dashboard and you could say, okay, here's all the companies I'm registered with. Maybe it's like a last pass thing. It's also got your access to your passwords and maintains all those, mm-hmm. you know, and then blockchain, it's got all your private keys. Cause that's the thing is I think blockchain is a really interesting, like peer into the future of things are going to get a lot more complicated, but we're going to be slow to adopt them until somebody uncomplicates them for us. People think about like, oh my God, blockchain is huge. It's having this huge moment. Like less than 2% of the world owns cryptocurrency. Like it is not mainstream whatsoever. It's mainstream in certain unique circles. But the thing is like, it's too much of a pain in the ass to do anything. And even with something as simple as like Coinbase is to use, it's just still not where it needs to be for like really robust adoption, mm-hmm. feeling mm-hmm. comfortable with it. And for people to actually be able to do other stuff with it besides speculation. And there are plenty of coins out there that have other purposes and stuff, but they those have definitely not gotten to that next level of, oh, let's like be able to take care of these other mm-hmm. concerns. Mm-hmm. Healthcare is a prime example, right? It's like, why shouldn't, like, why should a hospital, why should your doctor keep your health why shouldn't that be something like you show up to your with that to me is like one of the main things that should be decentralized because it's like like it's like they maintain it it's like a permanent record like you're in high school or college or something and it's this is actually mine right or like how many times does someone try and hide your chart from you or anything like that like these weird gatekeeping behaviors that exist in the medical community that's that's actually mine they're like no this is ours this is healthcare information like, but it's about me like why do you get to have why do you get to pull all the strings that's crazy one of the things that i'm so intrigued by because of your perspective just last week i was starting to think about what does v5 of my business look like because on one hand you know, you yeah, I can scale until there's no more hours in the day for me to do work, but there's got to be something more out there. And I feel like a conversation with you would help get me out of the trees and help me to see the forest. What is the next iteration of my business working for physicians? Because I can't see it right now. Oh, I, like it to me, I look at it's it's like an autonomous agent, right? So... What you really need is, because right now you're effectively still trading your time, time for money. money. But to me, this is like a great way to you add in. Like I say, every company is going to become a software company or whatever. So it's, you just you basically make this a platform that is driven by like a psychological autonomous agent that can negotiate, that can, can you know sign and evaluate contracts mm-hmm. and score contracts. So imagine you just come up with some, because you could come up with something simple right now where you're like, okay, every physician contract has these like 
20 different elements to it or should and then you just come up with a scoring system for each of those so then it's your like wonder this is like the rocky mountain physician score and it says like it, this just judges like how good a contract is and then you add in on the back end like a variety of factors so like where's the location versus like maybe where the physician wants to be just like help people with all that side of things you could take over this entire industry because really uh, I don't think many people are doing what you're doing but then when you're getting to that second third fourth fifth layer right add in if you needed to add in a blockchain element for security so it's like fully decentralized that you can even add in like smart contracts so it's okay if a hospital will meet x y and z criteria then this physician will sign with them and then I think the other side of this too is in the data Right. That yeah, is like where this yeah, is incredibly valuable is that you're at the same time as you're helping all these people, you're collecting and getting releases from all of this data that you then become the number one source of data on physician compensation negotiations. So that then people can come in and they can be like, oh, hey, I'm about to graduate from Stanford Medical School and I just matched with this hospital in Chicago. And so please. I want to sign up for your service. Tell me this. And then you can have different things where it's, oh, just access to the data or say access to a mm -hmm. dashboard that says, mm -hmm. hey, mm -hmm. if you were to even during the, I think the other thing too is actually even dialing it back into residency or even before is, hey, which residency should you go for if you want to end up in X place for wow. money? Because then what you're really talking about is you're building like a full life cycle platform for physician yes. careers wow. and so you can start with an endpoint in mind so you're like hey when you're 50 years old what do you want to be doing as a physician do you want to still be practicing do you want to be an entrepreneur do you want to be a, a hospital executive do you want to be a healthcare a pharma executive right and then you can basically craft a career map with a ton of robust data that shows along the way, okay, here's the best steps for you to take given where things are going. And then you can get better at predicting changes and say, oh, this new medical technology just came out that's actually going to get rid of this type of job or the like robot surgeons are coming or whatever it's going to be. Mm -hmm. So you can help people then navigate over like the next 40, 50 years of, hey, how can I become a doctor of the future? And it's you're protecting them because this is the other thing too. It's like we talked about before. It, this is analogous both to the facial recognition fighting against self-empowerment, right? Is what it's all about. So you're fighting a back against the system. And so this platform is all could be all about fighting back against the system of old white men who run hospitals and oversee all of hospital hiring. And it's okay, we're going to give this tool that empowers people of all races, colors, genders, etc., so that we can help level the playing field. Because how much of this can be just a good old boys club? How much of it can just be like, oh, I know so and so I'm actually going to get there or I'm not going to, I'm a woman. I was told never to negotiate salary where it's like, nope, here's your automatic, yeah. like we're negotiating salary. Like this is happening, put in your desires. And so it's mm -hmm. really, and then you can learn so much about what do physicians want? Yeah. Right? What yeah. system should actually exist? Would we have a healthier country if we had physicians who worked 35 hours a week, 
if we had enough, that would probably be the case, right? Because they'd probably yeah. be happier. They'd probably yeah. be more mentally alert. The, you know, what if physicians could spend more time with individual patients? What if the incentives were there for that? Those are the kinds of things that you can really work towards. Okay. Because for me, like this show and a lot of what I do is about fundamentally helping people completely reimagine the way that life, because we're all just born into this system. Where we're just like, oh, United States, this is what the thing we do. And it's like, yeah, but that's only because some people wanted it. And so if you want something different, you just have to get really clear on what it is and how you're going to do it and then just go after it. And that's how we actually can make change with things. But I think like what you're doing, you basically did that for an industry. You saw a need, you saw physicians leaving money on the table. You saw them sucking at salary negotiations versus hospital executives who are probably pretty skilled at that. And that's the whole thing that people forget a lot when it comes to salary negotiations is in your career, you may only negotiate a salary one to 10 times against a person who is negotiating salaries one to 10 times a week or a month. Or yes. Yes. And so it's just a hugely imbalanced situation there that I think you can develop such a robust platform here that you're talking about getting into even before you automate it. The other thing, I think automation is like the, the 2030 plan. I think from now to 2025, it's like you have an education platform just waiting. Yes. Online education is so huge. And this is a hyper niche thing of, oh, okay, I'm going to write a course on educating physicians in in salary negotiations and in contract negotiations. How much could you charge for that? Or having a subscription fee and then even starting it earlier. To me, this is all about pushing it as far back into med school as you can or even before, just so yeah. that you can understand like, hey, if you want to be a doctor, this is what it takes in this country. This is what the journey is going to be like. This is what you're going to deal with at different milestones. And are you ready for it? We're going to help you get there. Yeah, yeah. You're spot on, dude. I, I educate residents and I've been all over the country, like Yale and Duke and Vanderbilt. And that's exactly what I do is the education piece. You're spot yeah. on. That's where you have to be higher further upstream because, yeah, they yeah. residents may not hire me today. But once they get fucked in their first deal, then they're going to call me. Say, hey, that guy, Ethan, who right. came to our school for free to tell me about what was going to happen. He called it. Yeah, he called it. Exactly, exactly. Putting, <laughs> doing webinars and local visits. Yeah, nothing beats yes. that because it's if they don't hire you the first time, they're gonna get screwed sometime, like you said. Yeah, and then you're the first person that's gonna be on their mind. And so, yeah, I told you so. Is a can be a great and lucrative <laughs> marketing strategy, right? <laughs> yeah, no, you're spot on. Yeah, this is I specifically. I'm so sorry that like I didn't have the conversation I, I that you expected us to have oh i have yeah. no expectations like this is a very wide-ranging show and we go all over the place and so I, I actually some of my favorite conversations are the ones like i look at my list of questions and i, I ask one or two of the stuff i had planned and the the rest just like rides out and you're someone i've obviously got plenty more questions that i'd love to have you on again and and would be happy to chat anytime because i feel like we could talk for days and days on end yeah let's definitely set up time again i i do owe you a an honest effort at going through your questions but man oh this no has been... totally great this has been fantastic cool, been cool fantastic cool. I, so... I definitely want for us to talk again i'm really like i said there's a ton of things that like 
I heard you say that either resonated or got me really intrigued that I want to hear more about, but we can certainly do that offline, but I definitely would like for us to set up some time to chat again. Oh, no, absolutely. So I guess I'll let you go today with my final question for you. And that is, what is the kindest thing anyone has ever done for you? Good question. I I think for my personality, and I, as I said, I'm an introvert, I'm stubborn, I like figuring things out on my own. When I think back to being in middle school, I had a professor who, teacher, who he gave us an assignment. We had to write a letter to an ambassador from another country that we wanted to learn more about. And we had to put our letter into an envelope address it and then send it and i could not get the addresses lined up correctly and my teacher made me do it no fewer than five times and i was in tears at the end of it and i think back to that and i just reflect on that fondly because there's, it's so easy to just say, hey, don't worry about it. Don't, you know, it's just a circumstance. But for someone to say, you got to push through and you got to get it right. That to me, like that takes guts and that takes compassion. And I, that reflects a lot. And I think how I coach basketball. Yeah, I expect a lot from you and I expect you to do it. I'm going to give you all the tools and resources. I'm here to support you. But nobody's going to do you any favors when you get out of here. So let's get it right here. Oh, it's so powerful. I love that story. Yeah, that's a great question. I I don't know that I've even thought about that situation in decades. But man, <laughs> that's that when you said kind, Strong like, yeah, memory. It's, yeah. it's tough, man. But that was something I look back on as man, that dude, I, like I said, I was in tears, man. I was in tears. And the dude said, nope, go back and do it again. Yeah, it's amazing the stuff that that sticks with you, right? Oh, it's crazy. (laughs) It's 30 years ago. That's crazy to say out loud. That's probably 30 years ago. Maybe, yeah, something. Oh, yeah. Insane. It's wild. Ethan, thank you so much again for joining me today. It's been an absolute pleasure getting to speak with you, and I look forward to our next conversation. Yeah, it's been a delight, Pacifico. Thank you so much for the time today. Oh, you're very welcome. So today's episode was brought to you by marketingforattorneys.com. If you're an attorney looking to grow your law firm and ditch the crowded field of pay-per-click advertising, then visit marketingforattorneys.com to book your free consultation today. Thank you so much to all of our listeners for tuning in to today's show. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you found us so that others can find it as well. And follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at the LUE Podcast, or visit our website at theluepodcast.com. And if you'd like to support this show even further, I'd love to invite you to become a patron of the show. For as little as $5 per month, you can help us continue to produce high-quality shows with amazing guests like you heard today. To become a patron, please visit patreon.com slash theluepodcast. We look forward to having you tune in next time for the next episode of Law, the Universe, and Everything. 
I'm Pacifico Soldati, wishing you peace, love, and awesomeness. Mm-hmm.